Hello, and welcome as we worship together as St. Matthew's United Methodist Church. My name is Elaine Hall, and I am blessed to be the pastor here with St. Matthew's. This is worship for Sunday, February the 7th, and we are continuing to make our way through the Gospel of Mark. Today we'll read from Mark chapter 3. Will you join me in an opening prayer? Jesus, you show up in our world and show up in our lives. And you make a difference. You are changing the world and we pray that our hearts would be open to you and our lives would be shaped by your work in this world. May we as your people live in your grace and share your care in a world desperately in need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. These words come from Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 35. Jesus went up on a mountain and called those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve and called them apostles. He appointed them to be with him, to be sent out to preach, and to have authority to throw out demons. He appointed twelve Peter, a name he gave Simon, James and John, Zebedee's sons, whom he nicknamed Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James Alphaeus's son, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. Jesus entered a house. A crowd gathered again so that it was impossible for him and his followers even to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they came to take control of him. They were saying, he is out of his mind. The legal experts came down from Jerusalem. Over and over they charged, he is possessed by Beelzebul. He throws out demons with the authority of the ruler of demons. When Jesus called them together, he spoke in a parable. How can Satan throw out Satan? A kingdom involved in civil war will collapse, and a house torn apart by divisions will collapse. If Satan rebels against himself and is divided, then he can't endure. He's done for. No one gets into the house of a strong person and deals anything without first tying up the strong person. Only then can the house be burglarized. I assure you that human beings will be forgiven for everything, for all sins and insults of every kind. But whoever insults the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. That person is guilty of a sin with consequences that last forever. He said this because the legal experts said he's possessed by an evil spirit. His mother and brothers arrived. They stood outside and sent word to him, calling for him. A crowd was seated around him and those sent to him said, Look, your mother, brothers, and sisters are outside looking for you. He replied, Who is my mother? 
Who are my brothers? Looking around at those seated around him in a circle, he said, Look, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother, sister, and mother. These are the words of God for us God's people, and we say, Thanks be to God. So we've been making our way through the book of Mark, and I've realized that even if the book of Mark is the shortest gospel, if we go through at the pace that we had been traveling through, it would still take a really, really long time to get all the way through looking at the gospel of Mark. So we're picking up the pace just a bit, um, but we're still going to make a pretty careful journey through the book of Mark over the next number of weeks and months um, to really get a sense for what's going on there and what is the good news that we learn when we really take it as a whole. So the book of Mark starts out saying this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in that first chapter, um, Mark really sets the scene that Jesus is um, the one foretold by the prophets that John prepares the way that Jesus heals and that he teaches and that he gathers particular people uh, to follow him and to serve with him. And now as we um, get to this part of chapter 3, Jesus is sort of consolidating that work of gathering followers Um, There were a lot of people who were interested in Jesus or curious about Jesus. Um, A lot of people who were seeking healing from Jesus or seeking that Jesus would heal someone that they loved. And so there were a lot of people kind of in the mix and gathered around. And they had different degrees of how committed they were and how connected they were to Jesus. So You know, we saw that when Jesus spoke to um, James and John and invited them to leave their nets, they um, immediately left their nets and they followed Jesus and they joined in on what he was up to. So Jesus is moving forward with his ministry and with the message that he's presenting to the people. And in this scene, he goes up on the mountain And to our ears, we sort of think like maybe rest time or mountain vacation. Um, But ever since the time of Moses, um, going up on a mountain like that has to do with organizing the people of Israel and um, hearing the word of God and then making concrete actions in response to the word of God. And um, then also at that time, when there were um, other revolutionaries or other um, folks who were plotting against Rome, um, they would do their plotting in the wilderness or up on a mountain um, to be away from anybody who might be trying to uh, interrupt those plans. And so even just that first sentence, um, Mark is signaling to us that Jesus is up to something important and um both from the Moses connection that he is um, connecting the word of God and the work of the people, and also from the um, connection during his time that um, that Jesus is gathering people who are going to um, 
turn things upside down, that they're going to make a difference in the world around them. So he goes up on the mountain and he chooses 12 apostles. 12 is a really important number to the to to Israel um, because of the 12 tribes. And so even though some of the tribes had been lost in the Assyrian um, exile, there's still this imagination within the, the Jewish people and their expectations and hope for God's leadership is that God will reestablish Israel. And in reestablishing Israel, God will reestablish God's presence with the people. So when Jesus shows up and he starts plotting to bring God's word and the work of the people together, and then he chooses 12, it's not just like, oh, that's a convenient number. Um, He's signaling that he is bringing restoration to Israel and fulfilling the hopes and dreams that God had given to them. He's gathering the people of Israel for a new chapter of their lives together. And so then we kind of shift the scene and we hear about when um, the crowd gathers and um, there's controversy about sort of who Jesus is and what he's up to. And Of course, a large portion of the crowd is there because they want to be in touch with Jesus because they know that Jesus is healing and they want in on the healing. But then there are also people who are um, confused or skeptical. So even his family um, thinks that maybe he is out of his mind. And... um, It's sort of interesting to note, thinking about Mark and his time and his gospel, that um, we could imagine that somebody telling the story of Jesus probably would not make up or add in this theory that Jesus was maybe crazy or in league with the devil, that, you know, if you're telling about what happened with Jesus, you wouldn't want to add in parts that are about people questioning his legitimacy And so um, scholars think that this is very, very likely to be close to exactly what happened at that moment. And it gets recorded um, not because it's flattering, but because it's um, probably highly accurate. So they set up this conflict and the leaders come down and they basically say, yeah, he's just driving out demons because he's in league with them. It's all a show. And... um, Jesus is like, stop, hold, hold up. That is not what's going on here. He uses the, the image of, you know, the house divided. Um, Abraham Lincoln famously used the same image when talking about the results of the Civil War. Um, you know, that a house divided can't stand when, um, when there are factions and warring that that doesn't lead to the outcome but there's a subtext to what Jesus is saying because it's kind of well look if i am who you say i am if i am who you say i am then Beelzebul is divided against himself and will fall if i am who i say i am then i am stronger and more powerful than Beelzebul and Beelzebul will fall 
But one way or another, God's kingdom is breaking in and Beelzebul is done for. Um, so Jesus kind of takes that moment where they're trying to turn the tables on him and he returns the tables to point out like um, the the depth of his power and the truth that, um, that no opposition is going to stand against him. And then we have this fascinating part that people have debated for centuries. When Jesus talks about... Um, Whoever insults the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. That person is guilty of a sin with consequences that last forever, is the way this translation puts it. And a whole lot of um, faithful and concerned people have said like, oh no, like, am I going to do that? Is that, you know, um, that sounds terrible. I don't want to do that. Um, I think it's the kind of thing that like, if you hold a concern in your heart that you might be doing that, then you're not doing it because you have a space within your heart to go like, maybe I'm wrong about the Holy Spirit and that probably wouldn't be good. The problem that Jesus is identifying is when these religious leaders have so hardened their heart that they look at the active work of the Holy Spirit and they call it the opposite of what it is. They see God's Holy Spirit at work and they say, that is evil. And a commentary I was reading this week says that, you know, the real problem with that is it's almost like buying into a conspiracy theory. Once you have decided that the work of the Holy Spirit is the work of destruction, then every other piece of evidence you see, you're going to um, twist and understand in a wrong way. So if the inbreaking of the Holy Spirit is bad, then you're going to fight against the work of the Holy Spirit in all the ways you can, which is clearly going to close you off from God's work in the world. And it becomes a self-reinforcing circle where you just turn inward and inward and inward with more misinformation and more distrust and uh, more hardening of the heart. And so the answer isn't necessarily to become more certain of something else, um, but to hold some space and some awe and some humility around the work of God. You know, of course, to seek to discern the spirits and to say, is life coming from this? Is God's presence felt here? But holding some humility of God's ways are not my ways and God's thoughts are not my thoughts. And in whatever it is that I'm seeing or judging or analyzing, I need to hold some space within my mind and my heart for like, maybe I'm not seeing this right. <laughs> maybe God is doing a new thing and I don't yet recognize it. So that we don't harden our hearts to the point that we assume God's good work is other than what it is. That um, as God's people, living in the world that we live in and in the environment that we live in where um, there are so many different conspiracy theories and so many different self-reinforcing um, narratives and 
folks get into like bubbles where they always hear from and always listen to and always speak to um, people who are kind of seeing the same slanted reality that they are. And then they get stuck. And so we that's the world we live in. And lots of people and lots of Christians with lots of different sort of ideological um, points of view are stuck in these bubbles where we just self-reinforce what we already assume. And our Christian witness may be to step back and take a breath and say, well, I know for sure that Jesus is the son of God and the good news of Jesus is remaking the world. And I don't know for sure what this or that particular um, world event or comment or whatever. Um, I'm not going to jump to a conclusion about the rightness or wrongness of of this thing. I'm going to hold some space for God's ways are not my ways. And God's thoughts are not my thoughts. And I don't know (laughs) everything about what's going on here. And um, as we do that, and as we sort of press pause on conversations that we might be a part of where um, folks are going down a trail of of misinformation or of um, conspiracy theories, we can bear witness to Christ who, um, who holds all truth and calls us to live in the truth. Um, so first, Jesus deals with the religious leaders and the accusation that he's in league with Beelzebul and teaches them about what it is to be in um, in opposition to the Holy Spirit and in opposition to the work that God is presenting them. So then Jesus's mother and brothers arrive and they want to see him, but also they want to kind of rein him in. He has um, drifted far afield just in physically, but also um, they're just not so sure about this whole thing. Um, You know, what he's up to or what the significance is or whether or not it's actually a good and healthy um, thing. And he kind of calls into question the family connection that they would have just held so, so dear. In our society, we're often... Uh, pleased and proud when a young person grows up and moves out of the house and gets educated and gets a job and maybe moves to a different city or region. Uh, We often look at that with pride and we're grateful when they come home to visit, but we um, see that separation from the family as a normal and healthy thing for a person to do as they grow up. But in the time that Jesus was living, uh, the, the expectation was really that a family will stick together and a family will rely on one another and support one another and um, be a part probably of the same family business or family farm. And so for Jesus or anybody else who just kind of like takes off and does something else, there's a sense of um, of abandonment and like something has not gone right here. And like he does with so many other institutions or expectations, um, Jesus kind of turns that around and he says, you know, 
that family connection and that birth, um, you know, kinship by birth that you hold as the most important possible connection is secondary to the connection with Jesus. So, um, who you are in relationship to Jesus is more important than who you are in relation to your family. Or maybe in our modern context where we choose some more things about who we associate, your relationship to Jesus is more important than your standing in your career. Your relationship to Jesus is more important than the clubs that you belong to or the honors that you have received. That that whatever the things within our lives that kind of seek to, to define who we are are all secondary to our connection with Jesus and how we live that out in the world. And so, you know, we're continuing to walk through a... Um, tough season and, you know, face um, travel restrictions and activity limitations that none of us like. And, you know, um, many of us have been defined for our lifetimes as churchgoers, but we haven't put our body in a church building in months. Or we have defined ourselves as members of the club, but we have not met with that club or we define ourselves by where we go to see and be seen. And those things are not options for us. And all of that is hard, but maybe also this is a time to um, drop back and reflect and reconsider, you know, what is it that we have at the core of our life and what is it that we use to define who we are and what's important to us. Um, so hopefully it can be a time of invitation to reconnect with what it truly is to know and love Jesus Christ and then what it is to live with that as our center. I hope and I pray that for myself and for all of us, we can um, draw ever closer to Jesus and that we can be those folks who are... Um, gathered around Jesus and doing God's will. Amen. Will you pray with me? Holy God, we give you thanks for your call to be your people, to be sensitive to the movements of your Holy Spirit, to be filled with your grace, to dwell in your presence, and to follow your will. We pray that you would form us for that calling, that you would lead, guide, and direct us in the ways that you would have us to go. And we offer these prayers not only for ourselves, but for all your people, that those who call on the name of Jesus would also be shaped by the presence of Jesus and would share his grace and his glory in this world. We pray for the leaders and rulers of our world, for folks who Make decisions that affect so many others. May those decisions be made with grace and wisdom and humility. We pray for Joseph, our president, and Roy, our governor, and all those who have been elected or appointed to be our leaders. 
May we, together with them, work for our common good and care for all people. We pray for this, our local community of Morganton. We pray for strength and perseverance as we continue to navigate the crisis before us. Give us kindness and patience and forbearance and the ability to solve problems. We pray for our local decision makers that they will make wise choices that balance the risks and the benefits, not just for a few, but for all of our neighbors. We pray, O oh God, for the concerns that we hold in our own hearts. And we offer them to you as we pray the words that Jesus gave us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Go into this world loved by Jesus who came to fulfill God's promises and to make all things new. Go in the name of God, who is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.